I can't help but laugh thinking of uh, the, my contribution to the New Hope cookbook, which is three easy ways to order Domino's pizza like a pro. Would you bow with me as we come before the Lord together? Father, we welcome each other into our presence as the church, your body, gathered on this Easter Sabbath. As we were reminded at the end of this holy week, Father, what everything has been building up to, God, in this Good Friday, in this Holy Saturday, and now this Easter Sunday, where we come to understand afresh and anew what it means that by your death we have life, and that by your living resurrection that we have the power to live lives of victory and of triumph as we follow you into the life everlasting promised to us, this life abundant. Father, we thank you, God, for the celebration of this Easter Sunday. For most of all, we welcome you into our midst as we say these things all in your holy and precious name, in Jesus' name. How was your week? It is that question, actually, that very basic and simple question that is increasingly more difficult to answer as we get older and older. How was your week? We very quickly think back and can't remember anything to say. We can't remember because there was nothing worth remembering. Monday very quickly somehow drifted into Tuesday, which bumped into Wednesday, which blurred into Thursday and somehow always turned into Friday. Into this great sameness, this feeling of the fact that our life is becoming one just undifferentiated, undistinct day into day which passes without remembrance, without recognition. This is the question that a man once asked two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And let me just read this. You can stay on John, but let me just read for you all according to Luke's Gospel in chapter 24. In the 24th chapter in verse 18, a man meets two disciples and asks them, basically, how was your week? What's up? This is how they reply. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now this is something different. This is a week like no other week. Things had occurred in this week like never before in all of human history. And I'd like for you to think just for a moment with me if in the entire span of human history as we've recorded it in all of our history books, what if it was just all the flatness of all the recorded times of centuries and millennia, never with at all if the Jesus, what historians call the Jesus event, had never occurred. The flatness of human history uninterrupted by divine intervention. We would be right now counting into the year 5010 if there was no BC, no AD. 
And it would just be one ongoing year after year, wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms rising, kingdoms falling, people living and people dying. It is at Christmas that causes the selfish world to stop and consider God's goodness. It is Good Friday that calls out to people who would wait and listen that there is mercy that is alive in this world and it is Easter that refreshes this incredibly weary world with the wonder of God, with his surprise and with his newfound joy. Here is something new. And my favorite words, or some of my favorite words in the Gospel of John, come from the Apostle Peter. If you turn with me to the 21st chapter, let me just read these words for us in 21, verses 1 through 3. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. And these words to me are precious. I'm going fishing. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter said. And they said, we'll go with you. The great theological response to the resurrection by Peter was, I'm going to go to fish. And when those words, the reason why they captivate me is because I can almost hear Peter go, (laughs) what a week we've had. I mean, my goodness, what happened this week? We followed Jesus. We saw Jesus crucified. We lost all of our hope. We were in deep depression in the grave. Three days later, we saw him again. He arose. What a week we're having. I got to go out and got to go fish. And the rest of the disciples said, we want to come. And so they go out to fish. And you remember, fishing was not actually Peter's leisure. Fishing was Peter's vocation. Fishing was what Peter knew. It was his trade. It was back to the same old, same old. Fishing like he had done probably every day of his life. And yet everything must have been different. I'm thinking he passed by the same streams that he'd always gone to, to the same lake he'd always been, and everything must have seemed different. There would have been a freshness to all the world in the same old, same old, back to the grindstone, back to work on this day in the light of the resurrection. If you want to back up just a little bit and as we consider this resurrection on this Easter day, I want to look with you to this other apostle, Thomas, the disciple, the doubter. I think most of us consider him in our mind's eye as something between grumpy dwarf and brainy smurf, who would just kind of say, oh, unless I see my own self, the nail marks on his hands, and have put my hand upon his upon nail marks, and see the hole in his side, I will not believe. This analyst, this empiricist, this scientist, this person who needed to see a bodily resurrection. And it is to this person whom Jesus says in verse 26 of the 20th chapter of John's Gospel. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas this time was with them. Through the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom. Then he said to Thomas, said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Here in John's gospel, we understand that Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection. Jesus did not ascend in some mythological, transcendental way. It was a physical, historical resurrection. I am quite convinced that if you could have hooked up EKG monitors to him, you could have graphed it all. It was not something where he physically was crucified and then rose again to some higher plane that can only be reached by some kind of meditation to get on this higher scope of life. 
bodily he arose into our world of flesh and blood, stone and concrete, relevant to this world and to this planet. Physically, historically, he arose. And yet every once in a while I come across, usually around Easter time, some magazine that is, it is with our increased technology, that I see more and more of this CSI style of analysis on the resurrection. Somebody someplace takes the Shroud of Turin, does a spectrophotometric, <laughs> I tried so hard, you guys, <laughs> spectrophotometric analysis, right? <laughs> Thank you. And just, they use like these, like, there's like, you know, crime scene investigation methods to historically document scientifically that Jesus' resurrection could have possibly happened. And they put it on and the new historical data recovered and all these different things. And I say, as if, if we figured it all out historically, scientifically, as somehow we could account for and make understandable God himself who died and arose. And we miss the central part of it all and the essence of it is the wonder of God. The incarnation and resurrection are mirrors of each other. And the incarnation as it is both physical and divine, so is the resurrection physical and divine. The resurrection was a thoroughly physical, utterly historical event. And yet, the resurrection is not explained as if if we have all the evidence, if we account for it all scientifically, we have somehow figured out what it means that Jesus Christ arose from the dead. It is a supernatural, divine act of God that came into our world, into our history, to change our time and place forever. John 20, 28, and 31 is this second telling of the divine part of the resurrection and not just the historical. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let me read that one more time because this is talking about you all. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It is not that faith runs counter to evidence, but faith does not rest upon the evidence as if evidence and scientific fact were the authority over God. It is quite the reverse. Faith is our authority and our evidences rest upon that faith in which we believe in Jesus and what he did, both in his crucifixion and resurrection. It is those of us who have written, who read what is written in the word of God and have come to believe, even though not seeing him, we have had a word spoken to us and we have believed in faith. Some time ago, I took my folks to a Billy Graham crusade, and uh, it was it was you know uh, I think they still have them, but as he's advancing in age, he's get more and more rare these opportunities. And I forgot I think it might have been maybe at, at Shea Stadium, but it was maybe about twenty or thirty, forty thousand folks in this huge vast auditorium, and it was the first time that I've ever been to a Billy Graham crusade, and first time I've ever heard Dr. Graham preach an evangel- evangelistic message. He spoke for about 20 or 30 message, the same old story that he's been preaching for all the decades of his life, the simple narrative of the gospel. 
And he spoke this to this hardened, sophisticated, cynical New York crowd. And my overwhelming thought as I listened to Dr. Graham preach to New York City folk was that this is not going to persuade them. I thought, you have to have something much more slick. The angles are not there. Where is that word that's going to, you know, get to be what the relevant, these sophisticated, you know, liberal New Yorkers, this is not going to work at all. And then it came to the moment of decision and Billy Graham's voice started to ring out through the auditorium, the altar call. And this is what God has used Billy Graham so powerfully and so signally in our generation. He now looks to all 20, 40,000 people and he looks at them as if they were just right next to him. And he says these words that I'll never forget. And he says, you come now. You come. Whether you are black or white, Hispanic, Asian, you come now. Whether you are somebody that has lived your life in piety or you are somebody who has been a criminal all of your life, you come now. Whether you've had the church in years and years or you go to church every day, you come now. You come. And streams of people started to make their way down and fill the field with thousands of people that were answering the call of God. There needed not to be evidence and proof that Jesus is alive. They could hear through the voice of the living God through this man. The living word of God showed people that Jesus is alive and was at that time beckoning, beckoning, beckoning people to come to him. It is this proof of the resurrection that we daily experience and it is this that we are daily called to by faith to live in on this side of Easter Sunday, on this side of the resurrection. When I think about these things, I can't help but think back to my, one of my very first religion classes. And uh, I don't know how many of you guys had a chance to take religion class in college and university. And I went there thinking that I was going to be blessed. And I took two religion classes. The first one that I took, the man was somewhat, you could tell, I could tell, he was somewhat a person of faith. He is somebody who kind of was struggling. He wasn't very happy with the fact that it seemed like he once had a faith, but now was kind of struggling whether he really still believed in the things that he was churched in when he was a kid. And you could tell there was a struggle in him. And it was in that place of struggle that me and my good friend Han attacked every single class. And every single time he gave us an inch, we, our hands would be raised and thinking like, okay, well, what about this? But Jesus did this. And it, I don't, to be completely honest with you, I don't know whether he was unhappy with where he was in his faith or lack of faith, or that he was unhappy because we were making him unhappy. Because we would constantly pester him and we would, after class, we would come up to him and we would say, you know, can we talk with you? And then he said, many times you look at his watch and say, I've got to go. And we would say, well, we'll walk with you. We'll, you know, we'll walk you to your car. We don't care if it's raining. We'll walk you to your next class. And so we kept on hammering this guy because he was unsure. My second religion class, this was a very different professor. He had come to this firm conviction that Jesus did not exist. The resurrection never happened. And it was his gleeful pleasure of taking young Christians apart. And actually, in this class, there's about 15, 20 of us and I, from IV, NAVS, Crusade. And every single time he would attack the faith, there would be about 10, 15 hands raised and saying, but what about this? And it was his great pleasure to systematically destroy our faith. It came time to talk about the resurrection. And he said, I will now show you why that it is completely unlikely that the resurrection ever occurred. And we were sitting there waiting. And this was his instrument of proving that it was unlikely the resurrection ever happened. And he said, let's take a look at the facts. He said, could the resurrection have been a mass delusion? Unlikely. Unlikely, he said. 
could the resurrection have been something where it was just something where he wasn't actually really dead and he resuscitated? That, he, that people thought he was dead, but that he wasn't really dead, but that he just kind of looked like he was dead and then was resuscitated. And he said, unlikely, unlikely. When people saw Jesus again, they knew that he was the living Lord, not somebody who was crippled or enfeebled. Unlikely that it was resurrection. He said, could it have been that it was just a big plot carried out by the disciples? That maybe the first disciples went and stole the body. And he said, the fact that maybe these uh, unarmed Nazarene Galilean fishermen and different people could go and overpower Roman centurions, steal the body, and then lie about it and be willing to be crucified and kill themselves for a lie, he said, unlikely. And so we are all thinking, yes! And he said, but no. You forget the most unlikely thing of all is that Jesus Christ actually physically resurrected because people do not resurrect. That is the most unlikely thing. And we all said, oh, it took me about three years just kind of simmering, thinking through that. And it took me three years thinking through that over and over again for me to realize, all right, so you began with the most unlikely thing is that Jesus Christ resurrected and then you ended up in that Jesus Christ, the most unlikely thing is that Jesus Christ resurrected. When your premise matches your conclusion, you're basically saying that Jesus Christ didn't resurrect and in the end you're saying, well, because Jesus Christ didn't resurrect. When those two things match, I said, I'm no genius, but you have a circular argument there. You're basically saying that Jesus Christ didn't resurrect because Jesus Christ didn't resurrect. And again, I'm no genius, but that makes you no genius either. Polemically, in the world of apologetics, we need to work in that fashion. And these arguments are important. They are, they are not unnecessary. But doxologically, that is to say, in pertaining to worship, pertaining to worship, I don't just want to respond that that is a circular argument, which it is. If someone says to me that the most unlikely thing is that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, I want to say exactly that is the entire point. That God, every once in a while at least, gets to do things that make us stop and say, I have not figured everything out. I do not know everything. I cannot make sense of it all. If God is God, every once in a while, He gets to do things which are completely unlikely and unexpected. We must leave room in our lives for God to surprise us. The fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, is not so much about knowing. It is about unknowing. It is about the fact that we don't know everything. We have not figured it all out. And we wait before the Lord God to instruct us, to teach us, to guide us, and even to surprise us. Well then, I have three applications for us in this Easter day. How do we do this and how do we live in response to this resurrection and the surprising move of God in history and the surprising move of God in our own lives? And the first application that I would like to give to us all is Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping meaning that we gather as the people of God Sunday by Sunday for worship. And the reason why we do that is because every single Sunday is a mini Easter. Every single Sunday is a mini resurrection. And a week without a Sabbath break is like history without Easter. Coming here on church on Sunday and obeying the Sabbath command is our way of declaring to our own selves, if nobody else, that He is my Lord 
and my God over the entire week, over the other six days. That if we do not do this and persist in this declaration, what ends up happening is that our idolatries of money, lust, and power invade and usurp God's dominion and kingship over our weeks and they set themselves up as little dictators and rule us with guilt, anxiety, and fear where God would rule our weeks with faith, hope, and love. You must and you should and you need to look forward to Sunday as an Easter event that happens every single week by which you are open and available to God for Him to intrude, invade your life and your world with things that may even surprise you. And you may come on a Sunday thinking, I figured it all out. This week was just the worst. I don't know how things are going to get better but I will bring my body and I will occupy a pew even in my weakness and I will let there be room for God to say something to me, something new, something fresh, something I had not thought of. Give me a new perspective. Give me a new idea. Give me a new strength of faith to stand and live this next week in the light of his victory and his resurrection power. Sabbath keeping is the first application I'll give us. The second application comes from John 21, 18 and 19 very quickly. John 21, 18 and 19, post-resurrection, Jesus is addressing Peter and he's saying, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The second application, post-Easter, is that when Jesus says follow, we say we obey and we walk with him. And what it is is that we follow Jesus too and where is Jesus leading us to? I'll take you back to Jeremy's sermon that he gave a few weeks back. When Jeremy was unfolding before us in the Gospel of John and especially John chapter 1, that this is new creation. This is creation language that we are revisiting in the beginning of John's gospel. That in the same way that Jesus, that God said in the beginning of Genesis, let there be light, in the beginning of John's gospel, God is saying, let there be Christ. And a new kingdom, a new age, an entire new heaven and earth that God is building in and through the kingdom of his son. Jesus is not about just saving an individual there, saving an individual here. He is about saving the world. And so we follow and we go where he leads and we build his kingdom with him. And we engage ourselves in those activities which bring his kingdom to earth, that bring his will as it is done in heaven to earth. We engage in those things, which is why wherever the church establishes itself, especially in countries that do not have a Christian witness, wherever the church establishes itself, justice, mercy, reconciliation, forgiveness, healing, restoration, redemption. These things flourish to speak of the kingdom of Jesus. And it is to this that we follow him when he says, follow me. What makes it so difficult for us is our last application. What made it difficult for John, for made it difficult for Peter in the Gospel of John is that these words, when Jesus said that this is to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God, And so Peter turned in verse 20 and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. 
This is the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Namely, John the Beloved. And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? And the end of this Gospel of John, John finally comes out at the end of this long Gospel. And if you just read here, it says, um, in verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. John was saying, this is me, the beloved who wrote these words. And John is saying, hey, he didn't say I wasn't going to die. He only said that if he was to remain, what is that to you? You follow me. In these last words here, there's something, a great difficulty that Peter has in following Jesus and the fact that he may die. And Jesus alleviates him of that fear, of that concern by saying, you will die. You will be martyred for my faith. But don't let such a small little thing as death keep you from following me. He reminds him of who stands there in his resurrected life, conquering the grave and death, and saying, don't let such a small thing as death keep you from following me. And so we must join along with Peter and along with John the Beloved, and we must remind all of ourselves, and this is the last application I, I would remind all of you, you and I, we're dying, all of us. We don't know when, and hopefully it'll be a while, 20, 30, 40, maybe years. We're all dying. And we need to get comfortable of seeing our short span of life in the context of eternity. Death not frighten us. Such a small thing as death, conquered by Jesus, hinder us, or the fear of death, hinder us from following Jesus. So I would like to close just by telling you about a remarkable book which I've just been reading. And the book is called Between Cross and Resurrection. And Gian, do you have that? This has been one of the most important books that I've ever read in my entire life. I commend it to you all. It's called The Cross and Resurrection, A Theology of Holy Saturday. It's written by a man named Alan Lewis. Uh, it is extremely difficult to get. Amazon Amazon only gets about three or four copies at a time, and I usually buy them. And I try not to so that other people can actually buy them. It's actually it's true. I, I stop myself from buying it so other people can actually, can actually buy them. This book is written to you by, by a man. And he's, he's contemplating about the cross, Holy Saturday, and the resurrection. This book is the most amazing book in even the way that it is written because as this person, he started writing this book and thinking about this as a theologian, as a scholar, he started writing this book. And as he started writing this book, not too far as he was underway in writing this book, he was diagnosed with an extremely aggressive form of cancer. And so as he's writing this book and contemplating about the cross and the resurrection, he himself is dying. And he writes as a dying man to dying men and women. There is not a word that is wasted. There is not a single page that has any kind of fluff or sugarcoating or trivialities. He has no time to engage in it and he will not waste his life in this way. Every word counts. And he says more in two or three sentences than people say in entire chapters in other books. And I read this book thinking, I would very much like to write like this man. 
And that led to the thought of, I would very much like to die like this man. And on the heels of that thought is, I would very much like to live like this man. Focusing upon the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for our lives and our own death and our own resurrection, it focuses us in our same old, same old occupations and taking care of our bills and things that we need to in the same old life, death, and taxes. And it elevates us and focuses us to think about eternal realities and eternal purposes and significance that we have even in this life as we cross through it. We ask that you bow with me now in prayer as we contemplate these things. And one last time, the realities that God has given us in this Easter Sunday. Would you pray with me? I'd like to ask you just, as we contemplate in prayer, just a little bit of what I spoke in, in that first word of application of, are your weeks flooded by idolatries where these smaller usurpers of God's throne in your life have come to nip at your heels? and infect your weeks with anxiousness and guilt, distractions and hurriedness. Rather, that especially on this Easter day, on this Easter Sabbath, that we bow before Him and hail Him as King and Lord and God over all of our days, all of our weeks, all of our life. That would transform our very common lives in our occupations, our duties, our child-rearing, and would elevate that to eternal and divine significance. This is what he died and rose to give to us in our daily lives. Would we look to him and his power and his grace? Father, we are going to go very shortly, Father, from this temple, from this Sunday, from this Sabbath. And we will awake again, groaning into another Monday. And we anticipate, God, that day now, instead of it being one filled with exhaustion and hurriedness and pressure, God, would we take what we gain from these Easter moments, Lord, with you in the power of your new life and new creation, in your kingdom come, Father, in your life and resurrection. Will we take that into our Mondays? And dew of the morning would be fresh as we look at and encounter our same old life as you experience it, as we experience it in you. God, in the newness of life given to us by all that you have died and suffered and rose in power to give to us, would we look to you this day and be filled with awe and wonder and fear of the Lord? Would you give us the faith to wait upon you this week and leave room for you in our mind and hearts, God, to bring us surprises, things we had not thought of, as if we ruled over the world, as if we were the Lord of our own lives, as we come before you humbly and wait in expectation for what you will do because of your great power and your great love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.